people use metaphor to sort of like wave away problematic things that they don't want to deal with. Being used to structure um, an image of God working to create the world. And there's a lot of anthropomorphizing going on of, of God. He's portrayed as a ruler or an artisan who is doing these things that rulers and artisans do very human things, because that's the connection we need, we need to understand, like how a supernatural creator of the universe does things. This is not something we have experienced. Creation is describing the work we, it is work. And you mm -hmm. mentioned decreeing, making, separating, naming, evaluating, uh, delegating, commanding, providing resources, all being mapped onto God's creation. Can you go more in detail about how that all works and like what that is attempting to describe? Hello everyone, today we're going to be talking about the area of Genesis, whether it's literal or figurative. We're going to be interviewing Christy Hemphill, who is a scholar in the area. She is an expert in linguistics and like how to recognize metaphor in the Bible. Hey Christy, how are you doing today? Uh, could you give us a little background and like your expertise and all that? Um, sure. I uh, My background is in education. So in undergrad, I studied languages, French and Spanish and education. But then I went on and I got two different applied linguistics master's degrees. One, um, I studied linguistics to teach English to speakers of other languages. And um, the second, I studied linguistics to describe minority languages and um, work on Bible translations. Mm -hmm. So that's where my academic um, formation is. And then for the last 10 years, I've uh, worked for an organization uh, called SIL. We do development work in um, countries with my minority language communities. So we provide linguistic support to teachers and educators who are um, developing bilingual and literacy materials. And we also support individuals and churches that are um, translating the Bible, translating other um, documents that help communities flourish. Awesome. And you also are doing or already done like a, some type of curriculum. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I have a side hobby. Um, volunteering and working for BioLogos, which is an organization dedicated to furthering the conversation about faith and science in churches. And so for about seven years, I've been a moderator on their online discussion forum. And um, one thing led to another, I got involved with developing a high school curriculum for um, Christian schools and homeschooling parents. And it is 15 different units that sort of delve into different topics at the intersection of um, Christian faith and science. So um, I've been working on that for about four years now, and it just released. Actually, I just got the email yesterday that it is all oh, units wow. are now available. Oh, wow. Biologos.org slash integrate. <laughs> there you go. All right, I'll put that in the description for sure. So someone uh, someone referred a paper to me, and I was uh, reading it, and then all of a sudden you showed up in one of our little Facebook groups together, and I was like, oh, shoot. I'm all over the oh, internet. Yeah, right. <laughs> So I would, uh, so I figured I'd ask the interview. Um, but that paper is called "All in a Week's Work: Using Conceptual Metaphor Theory to Explain Figurative Meaning in Genesis One." Could you talk about the the basis for that paper as well as just your general view on Genesis One here? Yeah, sure. So that paper came out of um, my work moderating the discussion forum because every month or so, someone would come on the forum and we'd have these conversations about what a day means in Genesis. And in the young earth creationist um, kind of world, they're very insistent that a day means 24 hours. And therefore, since a day means 24 hours, we have to take the account in Genesis 1 as a description of literal history. 
And um, just as a linguist, I, I noticed lots of problems with the arguments I was seeing. And also the arguments for like my own perspective were kind of based on flawed reasoning. And so I decided to, you know, finally like formally write up my thoughts and put sort of citations in and, and have it nice so that I could refer people. You know, I wrote about this um, the next time someone showed up talking about um, what does a day mean in Genesis? So basically you have um, three main views. So you have the young earth view that um, the day, the word yam in Hebrew, um, it's used in its primary sense and it means 24 hour day. And so therefore we need to take, we need to interpret the entire account as literal history that happened exactly the way um, it's described. And then there's um, kind of the old earth creationist um, arguments tend to go, no, no, there's this figurative sense of the word day that we can find it's used in other passages, like kind of expressions that would be similar to like in the day of Elijah, which, where it refers to a long period of time. And so they say, because it has this other meaning, we can import that meaning onto the passage. And so these days of the creation week were really more like eras or long periods of time because the word is being used in a figurative sense. And then you have the third um, argument, which I would take, which is that, no, the word for day is not in that passage is a normal day. It's not being used in a figurative sense. It's not referring to an era. It's referring to a normal day. But that doesn't mean that we can't interpret the passage figuratively because figurative meaning does not depend only on figurative versus literal senses of words. It depends on how your brain is processing the, the communication and the inferences you're making about what the speaker intends. So the paper gets into um, how our brains understand figurative language and um, how we can use that understanding of what's happening in our, our mental processing to make better arguments about Bible interpretation. Awesome. Yeah. No, something I really liked about the paper was that you you didn't um, you, you looked at it kind of objectively, like you said, OK, so there's people that take, you know, my realm of the views and then you have other people that take other views and you're like, well, it seems like all sides of the issue are really approaching it in the wrong way. And I really like the way you approach it, but also how there's often there's this 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 thing about like how we communicate and how we think where like we intuitively have this idea of like, OK, this seems right or wrong, but we have a we often humans do a, a poor job of describing it. And I mm -hmm. think that your paper did a really good job of describing like what exactly we're thinking and that can help uh, communication, but also uh like argumentative skills and all that kind of stuff so yeah yeah really we always wanted to that. say what makes sense to us and mm -hmm. obviously it should make sense to other people but we should be able to explain why it makes sense not just right. assert that it's obvious right totally yeah so um so to really dig in deep deep into it um question for you what do you what do people usually mean when they say x text is metaphorical like this text is metaphorical or this text is literal and like what kind of issues can that cause? Yeah, there's a lot of um, lack of precision about the way those words are used. And I mean, some of it's fine. Like we use words in common conversation differently than we use words like in a technical sense. But if you're talking mm -hmm. about Bible interpretation and you're talking about technical terms used to interpret, then you should use your terms correctly. So I know you can find lots of YouTube sketches about the misuse and abuse of the word literally. So um, what I have found 
is um, a lot of times in, in biblical interpretation, people conflate literal with true or historical. So when they say, I take the Bible literally, they're not really talking about a difference between literal meaning and figurative meaning. They're, they're saying, I believe the Bible is true. I believe it's um, describing history. And the problem with that is um, different kinds of texts use both literal and figurative language to describe true, thing, true things or to write about fiction. So you have, you know, Byron wrote um, about the destruction of Sennacherib and, you know, the Assyrians came down like a, a wolf on a fold. That's all metaphorical language that's used to describe a historical event. So there's nothing about poetry or metaphor that means you can't use it to describe reality. Um, the truth value of a metaphor is not, um, it's in what the speaker intends to communicate. So if I say, last night, the sky was velvet full of diamonds, I'm, my proposition is not the sky was literally made of material and, you know, stars are literally rocks. My proposition is last night, it was very dark out and the skies, the, the stars were very like impressively bright and sparkly. And so you have to evaluate what proposition I'm making by my intended meaning when you're evaluating the truth value of my metaphor. You don't just say, well, if you don't interpret it literally, it's not true. So that's that's one thing that literal gets conflated with true or historical, and that's not necessarily right. The other thing is people use metaphor to sort of like wave away problematic things that they don't want to deal with. So um, you hear people say, well, that's a hard thing to interpret. It's, it's probably just metaphorical. And that's their way of saying, we don't need to take it seriously. I've dismissed it as something that doesn't need to be dealt with. And that's not like metaphor is a specific thing that does something with how we understand. It's not a way of saying something doesn't need to be taken seriously, something's fiction, something's just poetry. You hear that a lot. So um, <laughs> I, I would like people to, when you're talking about what is metaphorical language, what is literal language, it can all be part of describing something true. It can all be part of describing something historical. And um, the truth value of what you're um, proposing depends on what you're intending to communicate, not on whether it has a literal interpretation or a figurative interpretation. Yeah, sure. And uh, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned how there's there's like a de big debate over the word Hebrew word for yom, which means day. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so many scholars think it refers to 24-hour days. And then mm -hmm. people conclude that because it's 24-hour days, the entire text of Genesis must be historical. Uh, can you talk about some possible issues with doing that? Yeah, I think it's just, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how we actually interpret meaning. So words... Um, can have multiple senses. So for example, the word head in English has a primary sense. It's, you know, this body part right here that sits on my shoulders, that holds my brain and my eyes and my nose. Um, but we can use it um, over time. Words develop these extended metaphorical meanings. So a head can also be a boss or a leader. A head can be a way to count pieces of lettuce or, you know, cattle. So you have these extended metaphorical senses that if you looked up this word in the dictionary, you would find the primary sense, the body part on top of your shoulders, but you'd also find these um, figurative senses that ha has come to um, mean because it's been used metaphorically conventionally over time. So when people are talking about the um, literal and figurative sense of yam, they're talking about the word having a, a primary sense and a figurative sense, which is useful sometimes when you're when you're trying to interpret what sense is the word being used and you have to ask those questions. 
But what people don't know is that when we use metaphors, we're very rarely relying on figure senses of words. We rely on primary senses of words to understand metaphors. So if I said, his face is an open book, it's a metaphor. I'm comparing a person's expression to a book. And I'm linking two conceptual domains, the domains of faces as places where we express our emotion and show our feelings and give people clues about what we want to communicate and books having um, their place where you can read information and learn things. And so when I say his face is an open book, I'm asking my hearer to draw on their knowledge of what faces do and draw on their knowledge of what books do and make a connection between the two and say, oh, so in other words, you could learn about his feelings by looking, by reading his face. But I don't need to have a different definition of the word face or a different definition of the word book in a dictionary in order to understand that metaphor. But understanding is in the link between the two concepts and in the, the, the connections, the similarities that I'm making as I process it. So when we're looking at Genesis 1, we don't need a new definition of day to understand the process. We need to say, okay, what are the links between the image that's being presented in this and the, um, the concepts that this image is being used to describe? What links are we supposed to be making? Because the meaning is in the links. It's not in the words themselves. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that explanation of it. Um, on the flip side, you have some people talking about how a day could be figurative in Genesis and therefore... Mm -hmm. The whole thing is figurative and we don't only, we don't have to worry about science or contradictions or anything like that. So can you talk about that? Yeah. Again, I think it's this idea that if people rely a lot on what's called the code metaphor of language, which was sort of the old idea of communication theory was that we take our meaning as a speaker and we bundle it up in these meaning units called words and we put them together in these mathematically describable ways according to grammar, and we send a message, we transmit it to a hearer, and then they unpackage the meaning containers and calculate according to the grammar, and they decode the message. And so that's how the messages are transmitted. And as people have studied like what actually goes on in people's brains as they understand, and as they've realized that these very like formal semantic descriptions of meaning don't work for most of natural language, we are always inferring meaning that is not calculable from the words in the grammar. Linguists have become more, um, they've discarded this model and they use what's called the inference-based model of communication, which is this idea that um, in my brain, I have um, all these conceptual domains. I have um, concepts. So I have my experiences and my feelings and my, um, my way I've seen language used in my community and my experience living in community and like interacting with my world. And the, I as a speaker have these things. I have expectations of how things normally work. I have cultural frames. I have narratives that I impose on reality to understand significance. And my hearers also have these things. And so I can, I can communicate something and I am triggering their conceptual domains and their, the common ground we share so that they will infer the meaning that I'm trying to communicate. So, so now meaning is thought to be much more not encoded in language, but triggered and constructed together, like as a collaborative um, thing between a speaker and a hearer. And it's based mostly on our shared context and our shared cultural scripts and frames and ideas of how, like what normal people would think if I said this. So 
Um, when you say, well, yama is figurative, that's the only way to get figurative meaning. That's not, that's not true. We, we interpret figurative meaning all the time without using figurative senses of words because um, most of what we interpret is based on our shared context and just the assumptions we make about what someone's trying to communicate. Yeah, totally. Um, so we'll get more into that. You wrote in your paper that, you know, some people also say that the word for Yammer Day could be figurative and literal. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of close to your view, but it's also very different. Could you describe what's going on there? Yeah, I think it's, it's a difference in the idea of like a use of a word versus the meaning of a, an utterance. So in a, a particular use of a word, you can only use a, one sense at a time unless you're playing with words and doing a pun. Um, you, you, your brain will understand, well, the literal sense is implied or the figurative sense is implied. So I would argue that in this passage, it's the primary sense, the normal sense of day that, it, that our brains are using, that we're not thinking, oh, it's it means 20, you know, a normal day, but it also means a long period of time. It, it's not a play on words. It's, it's just the normal day. When you have a word used in an entire utterance or an entire passage, the meaning that you draw from it depends on these links that you're making and the way you're processing the intentions of the speaker. So, for example, I could tell you a story about a man's life, and I could say, in the spring of his life, love blossomed, and he met his wife. And in the summer, they did the hard work of raising their family. And in the fall, they reaped the harvest of all of their investment, and they enjoyed the bounty that their life had produced. And now they're in the winter, and they're snuggling together, waiting for the cold hand of death. Now, I've used the normal sense of spring and fall and winter and summer to use it as a metaphor to structure a life. And you would have to be really obtuse to be like, so that person is going to die when they're a year old because we know that spring means three months. Spring in passage that I just created is not being used as a measurement of time. It's being used as a metaphor to describe the time periods of a person's life. And I think in Genesis, you have something similar. You have a work week being used to structure um, an image of God working to create the world. And there's a lot of anthropomorphizing going on of, of God. He's portrayed as a ruler or an artisan who is doing these things that rulers and artisans do, very human things, because that's the connection we need, we need to understand, like how a supernatural creator of the universe does things. This is not something we have experience with. Um, and since humans work during work weeks, the work week is used to frame the image. It's not necessarily being used as a measurement of time. So just like it'd be obtuse to be like, you know, okay, so they had all their children and raised them in the three months of summer, it would be obtuse to insist, you know, day means 24 hours, so God did all his creation in 24 hours. Well, that's not, I think clearly not how, even though day does refer to a 24-hour 24 24-hour period, it's not always being used to count hours. Sometimes it's being used in other ways, and our brains can process this fairly effortlessly. I like that count hours. Yeah, right. I like that a lot. And one more view until we until we really get into um, your view on the topic. A day functions as a metaphor for God's timeless accomplishment of his purposes. What do you think about that? Yeah, I would kind of put that in the category of using metaphor to wave away something you didn't want to really explain. So <sighs> metaphors actually do things. They take like one image and they compare it to another image and you're supposed to make a link. 
Like, so the face of the, is the open book. You have to have a concept of what faces are and you have to have a concept of what books are in order to understand the metaphor, which is the link between the two of them. So if you say, well, a day is God's timeless creative works and you want people to understand that as a metaphor, then people have to have a concept of what a day entails and a concept of what God's timeless creative works are. And they have to have a salient point of similarity in those two things. And I don't know about you, but I can't think in my concept of God's creative works and my concept, there's no salient point of similarity between those two things. So I would say it's not a metaphor. If people can't calculate what comparison you're trying to make, then it's not a metaphor. I think what um, people who say that are trying to say is in the passage, day is functioning in a metaphor. And so we shouldn't interpret it as 24 hours. We should interpret it as part of this image about how God performed his timeless creative works, which is true. But that doesn't mean that the metaphor itself is day equals creative works. I, I don't see how you would get that because I don't see how a normal person with a concept of day and a concept of God's creation would like find a link there. Yeah, I think a lot of people when they come to the text, they realize that there isn't a straight straight as most people like the normal metaphor most people would use. Like it's like mm -hmm. Genesis doesn't say, oh, the day it, the creation it was like a 24-hour day it doesn't use that yes. language simile all that kind of stuff um but you propose that there's a different type of metaphor being used and you describe it as the difference between an image metaphor and a conceptual metaphor can you talk about that yes that's a brilliant segue by the way um yes so uh in English class, most of us learned about metaphors and similes and analogies and, you know, all these different terms that we had to identify in poetry. And most people, when they're talking about metaphors, they're talking about um, an what linguists would call an image metaphor. So that's where one mental image is mapped onto another mental image to have a point of similarity. So it's like the face in the open book is an image metaphor. I have a concept of faces. I have a concept of open books. I'm mapping the two together to make a description. And um, usually we see this in the form of, you know, something is something else. You know, the sky is velvet. But it, it, linguists don't get hung up on the exact words used. So they would also call like a simile an image metaphor or an analogy an image metaphor if it's one image with one image. Now, what um, cognitive linguists have uh, really delved into over the last two decades, three decades, is this idea of conceptual metaphors. So they have argued that metaphor is not just this fancy thing that we put in our writing to make it more poetic or more descriptive, that metaphor is a, a foundational cognitive process. So that as embodied human beings who exist in our worlds, we are constantly understanding our world by making connections between different conceptual domains. And we are especially likely to do this when um, there's something like abstract or more far removed from our embodied experience. We will understand it by linking it to something very concrete and embodied. And so they would say that there are like underneath many of our figurative expressions, our idioms, our figures of speech, our they call them metaphorical expressions, are these conceptual metaphors, which are ways of understanding the world via a link between two different conceptual domains. So um, an example of this would be up is good. 
So I can say, you know, this is really high quality or um, he fell from grace. He's at the top of his class. You know, he really hit the bottom. And these are all relying, and these are metaphorical expressions because goodness doesn't have anything to do really with spatial position. But in our brains, we, we always talk about good as being up spatially and bad as being down spatially. And there are reasons for this based on like our life. You, when you throw something on the ground, it gets stepped on, it gets, you know, animals get into it, children destroy it, it gets dirty. You put things that are important and valuable up high where they won't get damaged, where they, you know, um, are protected. When we want to hear someone speak because they're important, we put them on a pedestal so they're more easily seen and heard. So there are all these um, links to our experience where we have associated being up with being good or valuable or important. And then that concept gets used to understand things and um, we it shows up in our language. So um, the, the linguists have identified all sorts of these conceptual metaphors, these links between um, one concrete thing and something usually more abstract, but not always. And um, then they try to analyze how it comes out in the way we think about things, the way we understand things, and the way we talk about things. So um, in this paper, I was trying to not just look at the image metaphors, the explicit um, describing one thing in terms of another, but trying to say, okay, what what conceptual domains were linked in the ancient Near Eastern mind that led to this language that, that described creation as a week of God's work. And so I proposed that they were linking the conceptual domain of um, human work, which they understood because they were humans who worked, and this more abstract, inaccessible domain of God's unbounded, timeless, um, work as the creator of the universe. And so they were describing and understanding and explaining this abstract, hard to understand thing in terms of something that was familiar and related to their own experience, which was human work, human um, products of work, human work week, human need for rest, human, um, just these very embodied human things. And they were, they were um, mapping that onto God's work. Can you talk about some other conceptual metaphors that the ancient Israel writers are using here? Yeah, yeah. One that probably people haven't thought about because it, one thing to, to remember is a lot of conceptual metaphors you can find um, in, in many different cultures because they're like very human, but some are very culturally conventionalized and other cultures might not have them. And so if, because they're implicit and the language sort of flows out of them, if you, your culture doesn't have the implicit metaphor that it's going to be hard to interpret the language that depends on it. So, for example, in the Old Testament, there's a conceptual metaphor that God's wrath is strong alcohol. And so you have all of these um, images of Israel reeling drunkenly with God's wrath and God's cup of wrath being poured out, poured out on the people. And um, God talking about, I will make you stagger around senseless with my wrath. And if you don't have this link between... Um, God's judgment and, you know, drunkenness and the effects of strong liquor, the cup of God's wrath is going to be a very weird image for you. So, but once you, once you see it, like you see it all over the Old Testament, this idea of, you know, I, you will drink my wrath to the dregs, it says in one passage. What does that mean? Well, if you have, if you have this link in your brain between judgment and between drunkenness, it, it makes sense. You're like, oh, well, we're, we're in trouble. That's what that means. 
So um, that's one. There's um, other ones like people are described as plants a lot. I think I talked about that in the paper. So it's used to, I mean, I think it's used to understand reproduction and descendants and um, children, things like that. It's, there's all these links made between um, plants and people, you know, women, the, their wombs are barren or fertile and men plant seeds and um, your children are actually referred to as your seeds. And um, so a lot of their language relates to that. But also, like, if you read the Psalms, there's lots of um, people or plants imagery where God himself is pictured as a gardener who transplants the vine of Israel into, you know, from Egypt into the promised land, which is this vineyard that he's specially, you know, created. And when um, Israel is being judged, he allows the walls of the vineyard to be torn down and the, the vine to be trampled. And, and so there's a lot of imagery with rootedness is good and uprootedness is bad and um, plants that are kind of worthless like grass or wildflowers or chaff are, are linked to unrighteous wicked people you know or their mortality is in view whereas the good people are linked to the cedars of Lebanon and the you know the palm trees that are in God's temple and so you have all these connections between um, between plants and people that kind of flow out of this understanding of humans in terms of plants yeah totally yeah i love that example used in the paper about people being plants uh it's almost like we miss out on that when we're reading the text it's almost like well for me at least i've like i've read the bible i feel like so much that when i'm reading it i almost miss it like oh wait they're referring to them as a plant like how does that make any sense and specifically well, I think yeah. it, it, it brings out this idea of everything always has like a literal or a figurative meaning. And what cognitive linguists will say is because metaphor is part of our reasoning process, sometimes there's no like literal meaning to get down to. Like they actually did view people in terms of plants. That's how they understood aspects of humanity. So it's not that they're like, they were just creating this description, but there's a, like a different literal meaning behind it. It's like, no, the metaphor was the understanding. And so I think sometimes too, like this comes up with uh, discussions of ancient Near East cosmology and Bible interpretation. People are like, oh, well, when they talk about the windows of heaven or the storehouses for snow, this was, this was just a, a metaphor. It was just poetic language, but clearly they knew that, you know, snow wasn't stored in, in storehouses. And I would say, well, maybe not. Maybe the metaphor was their reasoning about how the world worked. And that was the vehicle they were using to understand based on their human experience, that was the best explanation they could come up with. And so for them, like it was a like literal description that the snow came from the storehouses of heaven because that was how they were conceptualizing it. And so that that's just kind of another way that when you're analyzing figurative language, um, getting down to, is this a metaphor that's being used to describe something intentionally where we're asking you to map two images or is this like, giving us evidence of a link between two conceptual domains that existed in their minds that was their reality that was how they understood it and your view of genesis uh you 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 describe it as you know creation is like describing the work we it is work and you mm -hmm. mentioned decreeing making separating naming evaluating uh, delegating commanding providing resources all being mapped onto god's creation can you go more in detail about how that all works and like what that is attempting to describe? Yeah, well, I think first you have to step away from this idea that 
Genesis is narrating like an eyewitness account of what happened. Because I personally don't believe that's what Genesis is doing. I don't think it was written down at the beginning of time. Um, I think that it, this account was, you know, Israel's account at a certain point in history. And they were, they were make it was given to them so they could understand God. They could understand their, their sense of self as God's people. And some things already existed when the account was was composed. They already had a work week. They already had agriculture. They already had rulers. And so um, the account was composed in a context where the hearers would have these concepts that the speaker could rely on as common ground. And so um, I think if, if God is trying to reveal important things about himself to humans in a specific cultural moment, through a story, then he needs to access the things that they experience and know. So um, my view of Genesis is not that it was to inform people facts about how the world was created, but it was to inform people who already had a concept of the world and a concept of a lot of other things. It was to inform them the truth about who God was, how he was different from what they'd heard in their cultural context, what humanity was and how it was maybe different from what they had, you know, absorbed from their culture and the religions of the surrounding area. So the, the account itself, the per, like, I think the intention of the account is to reveal the character of God, the, the kind of the, the purpose of humanity, the role that they have in creation, the expectations God has of, of humans. And it wasn't to um, to describe like a blow by blow eyewitness account of of what happened. So I think that's kind of an important presupposition to start with. And so then I think that the the author chose to use imagery that was common ground. Like people understood what rulers were like. They understood what artisans were like. They understood um, that work gets accomplished in you know during the daytime and you rest at night and then you come back and you work again. And you, um, after a week, you can look back at what you've accomplished that week. And so um, I think that that common ground that the person giving the account would have had with his audience sort of is what he's drawing on to explain who God is, who people are. And that's the like theological message that, that it's trying to tell us about. Yeah. So when I was looking at these different similarities, as far as like all these different verbs that are used, these creating words, separating and naming and all that. First, I think, oh, you know, weren't those same words used in the other ancient Near Eastern texts like the Babylonian Enumelish? So would you say that that almost was like the same type of creation as work that they were using? Or do you think those the other cultures were using those same words differently? Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not super familiar with the um, ancient the other stories, but I think that it was the case that um, gods were portrayed. It seems like more like it's, it's bad, like creation happens as a battle. Um, is maybe more the metaphor that they're using. There's a conquering of opposing forces that takes place. You have that some in Genesis with the kind of subduing the chaos of the primordial deep. There's that um, image in there. But um, I think that you have the, you know, humans are formed out of uh, the ground, I think comes up in some other 
accounts. But the reason that they're formed is to be slaves for the gods and to do the work that the gods don't want to do. And also because the gods are helpless and need someone to take care of them and they need people to bring food to their altars and, you know, provide them a place to live. And so I think there's these maybe points of comparison that aren't as salient to us because we don't, we're not hearing it in the context of other beliefs about gods. We don't, but like, if you had heard that humans are created to be God's children, like um, I was doing a Bible study on the image of God and, you know, it says humans are created in God's image. All the other animals are created according to their kind. And then later in Genesis five, it says Adam had a child in his own image. And so this idea like children are the image of their parents and God creates humanity in his image to be his children. And this is not how the other gods are portrayed in the other ancient Near Eastern um, religions. They're not creating humans to be children. They're creating humans to be slaves, to be like beasts of burden, basically other animals that work for the God's benefit. So um, yeah, I think that the other stories you can see definitely Gods are like humans. That's kind of common. Like if you look at the Greek myths that we learn about in school, that they're always like humans. And so it's not surprising that God is anthropomorphized to some extent by the Hebrews as well. Specifically, when it talks about naming and separating, um, mm -hmm. of course, the separating in the Numa Elish is literally separating Tiamat. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very different than what we see here in Genesis where, you know, separating dry land from the water and stuff like that. I don't know, maybe just a random guess. Like, is it is it kind of just um, just familiar language that they used back then? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would tend to think that they, the hearers had a concept of the world. Like they weren't blank slates who were like, had never thought about what's above us, what's below us. And, you know, tell us we are tabula rasa, inform us how the world is. Like, I think they probably already had that ancient Near East cosmic geography of, you know, the, the, have, the earth being on foundations and this, the, you know, the waters above and the deep, the primordial, like deep under it all. And, and so like, that was their concept of the way the world was. And so Genesis is saying, well, God did that. God was the one who separated things. God was the one who created it. It wasn't these other gods that maybe you've heard of. It wasn't as a result of a battle. It was, you know, God as the supreme ruler of the cosmos did it all. And then he took up residence in the cosmos as his temple and he designated humanity as his image bearers. And so, um, yeah, I don't think it was so much to inform them about how the way the world was, but to be like, okay, given what you know about the world, the important thing for you to understand is God did it and God rules it. And all these are like, you know, the sun and the moon, they're not gods. They're just created. And the, you know, primordial deep, the chaos that, you know, you might think the gods can't control, our God controls it. He subdued it. And so it was um, like rhetorically countering maybe some wrong ideas they had. In your paper, you briefly mentioned how the ruler's realm as you put it, um, is mapped onto domains of creation. So you talk about how like the day and night are created in Genesis 1, sea and sky are in Genesis 2, the land and vegetation are in Genesis 3. And then you talked about how 4, 5, and 6 are God putting the functionaries in those places. Can you go into a little bit more detail there? Yeah, well, I mean, this is not like my observation. This is just a very brief summary of what's called the framework view of Genesis 1 which sees the parallels between the first three days being establishing realms, 
through this act of separation, you know, separating um, light and dark, separating land and sea, separating sky and um, uh, heavens and earth or whatever it is. I'm probably getting it wrong, so you can go edit this out. Um, <laughs> but the, the, and then the, the next three days is this parallel of, okay, now the sun and the moon are created to rule this, the, the realm of day and night. And the, you have the, the land that has been created, the realm that's been created is now filled with the life in it. And so um, this is just a common um, kind of breaking down of, of what the days, like what, what might be one reason for why they're structured the way they are other than like a chronological explanation of how things became created. That it, it seems pretty clear that it's intentionally um, set up to be understood that way as God like creating um, domains and then setting like as the supreme ruler setting things in charge and or um, making things flourish in those in those domains. So if you googled framework view of Genesis, you could read all about all the scholars who've written all about this interpretation. Would you consider that there's other conceptual passages in the Bible that? we kind of glance over or we thought you probably give more insight to? Yeah, no, I think they're everywhere. I'm actually part of a project that's looking at conceptual metaphors and Psalms and trying to help um, bring them out for translators. Um, but one that came up in my work consulting on a minority lingu language Bible translation was the teams were having a lot of trouble with Ephesians 6, which is the armor of God passage. So, um, and there's, they were trying to translate, there's lots of connections, you know, between the, the sword of the spirit is the word of God and, you know, your feet ready or your feet have shoes that is the readiness of preaching the gospel. And so they were trying to make those into image metaphors. So um, salvation is a shield. But the, the problem is in that passage, it's, they're not really image metaphors. You have Paul exhorting um, the church to be spiritually prepared for spiritual battle. And that's where this passage comes up. So I think that like underlying this whole passage is a conceptual metaphor that preparation is getting dressed. And so like we have this metaphor in our culture, like we talk about, well, you need to sleep with your boots on or put on your big boy pants or, you know, tighten your belt because hard times are coming. And so we have this association of linking, you know, being prepared with having the appropriate clothing. But in the culture that we're translating in, they didn't have this link. And so it's super confusing to read this passage where, you know, Paul's like, you're going to have to do spiritual battle, put on the armor of God, put on this, put on that, put on this, you know, be ready with this. And it, it, he wasn't really, I don't think, he wasn't really saying, you know, the word of God is a sword. He was saying, you know, be fully dressed, be fully prepared. Every bit of armor that you, that a soldier needs, you need to have and you need to have it ready. So you need to be fully prepared. And so we found that um, if you could just make it explicit before you translated the passage, just say something like, um, you need to be fully prepared for battle like a, a soldier is fully dressed for war. Then they could make sense of this image and just kind of translate the stuff straight up, you know, take up the sword of the spirit. Well, now it makes sense because we've accessed what the link is. It's not between the sword and the word of God. It's between being prepared and being dressed for battle. So that's, that's one example. Is there any other uh, conceptual metaphors that you also would like to talk about? Oh, well, 
this is really my thing. It's kind of thrilling that you wanted to talk about it because like you and five other people in the world are interested in it. So um, <laughs> another passage that I think the idea of conceptual work comes in really handy with is um, the husband is the head of the wife. And I think that has gotten um, interpreted as head is a figurative sense. So the husband is the boss of the wife, basically. And I think it's a metaphor. It's saying the husband is the, the like body part, the head of the wife, and that the domain, the conceptual metaphor that's underlying it is that unity is like wholeness and bodily integrity. So you have these other metaphors in scripture, you know, Jesus is the vine and Jesus is the cornerstone and the church is a body. And they're all like these unity metaphors where it's talking about for us to be unified, we need to have like bodily integrity. We need to be a whole. We can't be cut off branches. We can't be, you know, a building without a cornerstone. We have to, we have to be, we have to have integrity. And I think um, in that passage in Ephesians, it's describing um, marriage as a unified whole. Like you're, and that, you know, relates to, you know, the two shall become one flesh. There's all these um, ideas of marriage being a unifying. And so I think when they're saying the husband is the head of the Life as Christ is head of the church, it's not saying the husband is the boss of the wife, like Christ is the boss of the church. It's saying there's a unity there that depends on bodily. So um, that would be another example of where I get off track, getting um, obsessed with figurative senses and literal senses, as opposed to looking at the image and the con like the conceptual domains that are being linked to to produce that language. Yeah, no, that's super fascinating. Um, I mean, I think there's also an argument to be made that like Paul uses the same metaphor other places and he kind of adds more detail there. Well, so, I mean, I think um, it's like, it's you can't argue, husbands were the boss of the wives in that cultural context. So that sure. wasn't new information. <laughs> but what, what would Paul be trying to communicate to husbands in that culture after saying some revolutionary things about how like, you know, the whole family is important, the slaves and the kids and the wives, not just the men. That, that was that was new information. And so I think what he was trying to exhort people to was a different view of marriage as like, you need to take care of your family and your wife because they're you. They're like, you are a united whole. That that would have been new information. Whereas like you get to boss your wife around, that would not have been new. Everyone knew that already. So that's really all the questions I have for you today. Could you briefly just give a, a great, a little summary of just like all we talked about real quick and, um, and then I'll uh, let you go. Yeah, sure. So I think the, um, the main point is that when you're talking about what does day mean in Genesis, your options are, well, you could say it has to mean, uh, it has to be a, a measurement of time and it, it means 24 hours because we have to take the literal meaning of the word day. Or you can say, well, no, a day has this figurative meaning that's something else. And it means that God created over long periods of time. Or you can say, no, it's talking about days in the normal sense of the word. But the word day is being used as part of a conceptual domain of human work. And that conceptual domain is being accessed to understand God's creation and God's work in creation. And that would be um, what I argue for. And um, so when we are talking about is something literal, is something metaphor, it's important to understand how we calculate literal meaning, how we calculate metaphorical meaning, and not just throw those words around to mean true or something I don't want to deal with or um, something that is like used as an excuse to either dismiss something or you know say something has to be history. Literal and figurative are very interesting topics. They have their own rules about how we use those words, and we should be aware of them.
Is there any uh, where where you would like people to contact you, or um, how would how would people access your 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 curriculum? Um, okay, yeah. So the curriculum that we wrote, you can read about it and get on a mailing list at biologos.org/integrate. That's B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S. And um, I there's a forum that there's a link there, and I am always around on the forum if you want to contact me through there. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm CJ Hemphill for on Twitter, though. I will warn people like I am not a serious person on Twitter. And so like if you are going to follow me, like hoping to get pearls of wisdom, you'll be disappointed because mostly I just joke around with people. Um, so, yeah. And um, I'm always happy to interact with people who are interested in the same things. This will actually be part one of an interview with Christy. And we'll be doing a part two on parenting and exactly what what her curriculum talks about and what it goes over and how that can be helpful for people that parenting or looking to teach views on super complicated subjects, controversial subjects. Um, so definitely subscribe and uh, to get more info on that. But yeah, I uh, appreciate you coming on, Christy. I, I hope you have a, rest, a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. It was thrilling to find someone interested in the same things I'm interested in. Thanks. <laughs>